The inaugural episode of The Razor's Edge covers the streaming industry. Disney is poised to make a big push with the launch of Disney Plus later this fall. AT&T is looking to max out HBO. Netflix, once the upstart, is now at risk of being disrupted. And even in the month since we recorded this podcast, more has come out as Apple has thrown their hat in the ring in a big way. I'm Daniel Schwartzman, co-host of The Razor's Edge, along with Seeking Alpha author Akram's Razor. In our conversation, one of the things I brought up as a shareholder in Disney is that Disney depends too much on its legacy businesses like movies and cable, and I'm worried that they'll have a hard time really diving into streaming. But Akram argues that the company is able to stack the deck while still keeping their legacy lines humming, at least this year. Look at what they've done in the box office. You've had the digital remakes of Lion King, Mm -hmm. Dumbo, Aladdin. You've had three Marvel movies, right? You've got Star Wars, you've got Maleficent, you've got Frozen, you've got Toy Story. So what is Disney doing? They're they're preceding Disney Plus, right? On the flip side, when we get to Netflix, Akram makes an interesting comparison to a formerly disrupted model when arguing about how Netflix should evolve. You almost want to make the argument that, that they go in the direction of cable, like you just have stuff running. So I'm kind of flipping through and discovering it. And then if I want to go find something specific, which has gone viral or my friends have referred me to, or I've been reading about, you know, I click that on-demand button, the way cable works today. There's a ton to get to in the streaming industry, and we only touched a part of it, but I hope you enjoy the conversation. Quickly, if you want to get more of this, subscribe to this podcast on The Investing Edge, our new podcast channel, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can leave a rating or a review, it'll be greatly appreciated as well. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to The Razor's Edge, Seeking Alpha's newest podcast show. I'm Daniel Schwarzman, and I'm your host, along with Seeking Alpha author Akram's Razor. Each episode, we're taking an investing idea or theme that Akram has been looking at for his personal investing or for the Seeking Alpha Marketplace service he runs, also called the Razor's Edge. We're looking at the ideas, we're stress testing them, we're trying to figure out how they might go wrong. We might just talk about whatever is interesting to people in these names or to the market at large. And also to kind of get into some of the research that might go into an idea or into an area to understand what leads Akram to the conclusions and to sort of the analysis he takes. The idea is to share some current investing ideas for your consideration, but also to get into the ins and outs of deep fundamental market research today. Our first topic, Disney and Netflix and streaming. Everybody's streaming and Disney Plus's pending launch later this year is the elephant-sized mouse in the room. How do the companies stack up and how do the other players or pretenders fit in? How do we as investors gain an edge in an area that everybody is watching, literally? And how do we avoid investing in theses based on anecdotal stuff like that's a great app or that's a really cool movie? Those are among the things we plan to discuss on this episode of The Razor's Edge. But before we begin, a quick disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a podcast on Seeking Alpha's new The Investing Edge channel. The views discussed belong to either of the hosts respectively, but not to Seeking Alpha as a whole. And nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions and any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast 
Though I can say upfront that I am long Disney and that Akram has no positions in any of the stocks we plan to discuss. And we're recording this on September 9th, 2019. So Akram, welcome on. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good to have you. Thanks. I want to get into this quickly, but for people who, you know, we spoke on a different podcast a few weeks ago for Behind the Idea, but just for people new to your work, would you mind just giving a quick sort of background to who you are as an investor, what what sort of your approach is and what brings you here? Nothing crazy. A typical finance background, worked as a prop trader, long, short hedge fund manager, and kind of these days more uh, independent trading on my own, activist short selling. I mean, I've done a bunch over the years, been publishing on Seeking Alpha since what, probably 2010. It's gotten probably I'd say around 2013, 14, I got more refined into uh, the activist game of you know doing deep dive primary research, typically on tech companies, but I mean, you know, I've covered, traded a wide range of ever, almost any sector you can think of. But as far as activist publishing, instead of really focusing on frauds or accounting related stuff, I've tend to go after uh, interesting technology companies from a viewpoint of looking at the business disruption, competition, and in, in many cases, trying to differentiate on the fact that you know a lot of growth names tend to just get whatever you want to call it, momentum, lazy investing. And there tend to be opportunities. So, I mean, notable ones I've done, you know, last year, NVIDIA, uh, Mobileye in 2015, uh, Jumia this year, PagerDuty this year, a little Dropbox this year, something like the SaaS sector in general. But yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of try to go where where things are interesting, on, at least, you know, when you publish on on shorts, particularly IPOs in, in general, there's tends to be a huge opportunity to differentiate if, you, if you're if you willing to do really deep dive work. Longs, not so much. I mean, I did, I did publish a long on, on Pinterest, you know, earlier in the year. I've done one on Target, which wasn't public. Starbucks last year, which wasn't public. That's not really tech, but like, you know, those are the, the things that occasionally will interest me outside of the stuff where you can do really deep research. But I mean, yeah, that's about it in a nutshell. Okay. So let's, we get, we have here Disney and Netflix, which tech with Disney, we kind of think about them broader. What's, what's bringing you here? What's sort of interesting to you about this dynamic, especially as we get really close to Disney actually being a streaming player? I mean, I'm a content buff in general. So, and I'm a huge Marvel fan, right? So, I mean, Marvel is actually the first write-up of a stock I ever did. Uh, back in the pre-Seeking Alpha days, Daniel, Yahoo oh. message boards. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Yahoo Finance message boards, if you remember those, <laughs> where, where they disappeared to. But uh, in 2002, yeah, like, like you know, just a, like two or three years into trading the market, wet behind the ears, you know, I had a portfolio that was like Marvel, IMAX, <laughs> Apple, you know, your standard Whole Foods. Consumer tech. Yeah, yeah. Buy what you love. You know, I'm always shopping at Whole Foods. I was an Apple buff. And 
when Spider-Man came out, the original Spider-Man in summer of 02, Marvel was a $3 stock, even after the movie was a blockbuster success. And I mean, I don't know how, how, how well you know the, the Marvel story. I mean, like, I don't know if you saw recently, Marvel's hit $20 billion in box office gross. Right. I mean, I, I'm aware one of the things that I, I opened a Disney position last year and one of the things that kind of turned my head was I don't watch the movies very much. I think I've only seen one or two of the what last set. <laughs> I, it's just never been my, my uh, God. I, I'm big on Star Wars, I have to admit. Yeah, and I okay. think it was like it, that realization that this is just one arm of Disney and they can kind of keep rolling and keep sort of building on it. So I did have that. And I, I want to sort of stress that, that, but yeah. So I'm so I'm aware of the loose outline of Marvel being just you know a dynamo success. For I mean, the Marvel story is probably one of the craziest stories in you know investing history. If you really look back to it, I mean, if you, I mean, I, I don't know if you collected comic books, but I was a bit of a comic book geek in the '80s, and. Marvel at that time that was like that was like right around when people started viewing comic books as kind of like an investing paradigm, right? Where you 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 buy issues, you hold them and they're going to appreciate, right? Okay. And like I think it was it was maybe 88, 89, Ron Perlman comes in, he acquires Marvel and he's and basically he kind of had figured out that like hey, <laughs> you know, this is a interesting business. People are are buying these comics uh, as investments. So I'll buy this company and maybe $80, 90000000 million he paid. And he listed it. And what did he do? He increased pricing drastically and massively increased volume, right? So you would have people, you know, buying some limited edition Batman, you know, one to read and three to store, right? And when you think right. of like short selling and, and, and bubbles, right? Like it's no surprise that what happened, this thing got out of hand and it got to the point where comics got so expensive that nobody was buying them to do what? Read them anymore. Right. They, the mar- they became kind of a object in and of themselves. Exactly. Like a tulip, like, like cryptocurrencies, whatever you want to talk <laughs> about it. You know, we you had Beanie Babies and comics and, and baseball right. cards, right? Actually, yeah. after after Marvel took off and like you know he bought the company for eighty ninety million and I mean I think it hit a one billion dollar market cap or whatever on the public markets once he listed it, he went out and he bought a a toy biz. Uh, the company was actually called Toy Biz, but it's a toy manufacturing biz. Oh, okay. And he bought what else did he buy? He bought a trading card company. So Marvel became this kind of like mesh of this of this you know bubbly type stuff and collectibles. And that market blew up to the point where the stock went from like, I don't know, 40 or 35 to like $2, right? The market collapsed, the bottom fell out. And he had a plan, essentially speaking, to finish off, like he'd bought a partial stake in the toy biz and to merge it together. And there's a whole book on this. It's fascinating. Carl Icahn comes in, tries to block it, and actually, Icon and Perlman end up losing to who? Isaac Permoter and who else? Avi Arad, right? Huh. Okay. They they were on the board. They managed to kick both of them off and take control of the business, which 
was ironic at the time, and it's and it's a crazy story. But Avi Arad basically had plans to take Marvelware into the movie business, right? Okay. But this company was on the verge of bankruptcy. Then it ended up going into bankruptcy and emerging from bankruptcy, even though Avi had put together the original X Men. Uh, I don't remember if you watched the X Men. Uh, I remember the TV cartoon show. series. Yeah, and he'd done Blade. You remember Blade? No. Do you know how no. much Marvel made on on Blade doing a hundred million in the box office? Twenty five thousand dollars. Wow, wow. <laughs> that's a lot. So like, it was it was this crazy mess, and you know, at the time, like they approached Sony because, like, you know, this, the the news recently, which is ironic, right? Sony and Disney splitting over over Spider Man, right? Mm-hmm. And they approached Sony and. They offered to sell Sony their entire library to make movies, you know, Iron Man, Captain America, everything that was available, right? Right. For how much? $25 million. That was 1998, right? And the, the, I don't remember the name of the guy, but it's, he's probably goes down in history as, you know, one of those epic investment fails. Well, and just for context, I mean, we're talking in the 90s. I remember the comic movie, book movies of the 90s, and you're talking about Batman Forever and Batman and Robin yeah, or whatever. D- the DC universe was dominant. Marvel just had like a little bit just starting to creep in based on you know Avi Arad's vision to basically take them into film aggressively and monetize the franchise that way. And the Sony executive was like, you know, you have Spider-Man and a bunch of other crap that nobody's interested in. So why the hell would I pay for it? How about I just give you $15 million for Spider-Man and a 5% royalty? Right? Right. And that, that was the deal. And they ended up making this, the Spider-Man movie a couple years later, right? Huge success. And so begins the Marvel, the Marvel story. And I mean, I remember getting into it and, and like just being so gung-ho long. And I'm just like, this thing is, you know, you know, it was at three. I'm like, it's going to go to 40. And I mean, I think I sold at like $15 or something initially the first time. And then I came back into it afterwards. Uh, I got excited about Daredevil. You'd be following like the films and then one would flop mm-hmm. and you're like, uh, we don't have a new Spidey yet. And they had bad deals with the studios. And even though like they, they had gotten their act together, the, the balance sheet had a lot of debt. It got cleaned up. The convertible notes were converted into equity. They exited the toy business, which was low margin. You know, They're in this high margin licensing business. And then I think it was like in 2005, they decided, you know what? Let's go at, go at this alone. And they went to Merrill Lynch. And it's funny because very few people talk about this story. And they secured you know, like a 500 million plus revolver to make their own films, finance them themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And those films, that money was secured by their entire library, right? And they took that money and they plowed it into making what? Iron Man. Iron Man flops. Merrill Lynch owns <laughs> Marvel Comics' his entire uh, film library, right? Right. Big gamble, huge success. And this is just to sort of jump forward for a second. Like we, we talk so commonly about, I, I think two things that seem to have changed. I'm I, I'm skipping, but are that comic book movies now are start you start with Iron Man and Spider Man, and they're now tentpole successes, and they're now really big deals. But then also, 
intellectual property is just, or yeah, that's how the, you know, the, the idea of you can build on our franchise potential and our, you know, that's obviously central to what we talk about with Disney, but that, that wasn't as common as a topic that like, I, I imagine in your original Marvel write-ups, you're not talking about intellectual property. You're talking about, Oh, well, they can make some movies, right? Like that's, these are things that are kind of evolving. Well, you were looking at a huge library, the ability to monetize it from licensing. The fact that each incremental successful movie increases the value of that library, right? And allows yeah. you to negotiate better deals with the studios. That was the initial, right? And 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 that thesis played out, right, from 2002 to 2005. I mean, the stock, you know, went up like six, six, seven x, right? Okay. But what they ended up doing is managing to take it to the next level by doing Iron Man, and then turning that into a huge success, and then along comes Disney. And buys Marvel because look, if you look at the if you look at the MCU and, and the, the the size of the projects and the timing and how well orchestrated it's been and whatever, I mean it's a huge financial risk for a company like Marvel to have tried to do. It. They couldn't have done it by themselves, right? Right. Even right. with that revolver and what they did as far as like catapulting Iron Man as as that that first you know basically the beginning of the you know phase one phase one of of, of uh, the the universe. And setting up everything else that came after it, they couldn't have hit the timelines, the schedule, the breadth, and whatever without, you know, a financial partner like Disney. And that's when you know, once Disney bought them, it's like that's, you know, the rest is as we say is history. Which is funny when you look at it today, right? Like Sony is essentially you know in dispute with Marvel, uh, with with Disney because Disney is being greedy, right? And, you know, the, the current deal is Disney gets, you know, Feige and uh, Spider-Man in their universe. They get a 5% cut of the gross on the Spider-Man movies, right? But they keep the merchandising revenue, I think 50, 50% of it, maybe 60% of it. I'm not exactly sure. But because they, they, they own that part of the business, which they bought from Sony a while back or whatever. And now what do they want? They want 50-50, right? I've heard they've even been willing to go for 30%. But like, you know, what what's in it for Sony really at this juncture? Right? Like it's right. like Sony for them, this is this is it. Like this is <laughs> this is like the, the their core franchise. It's and they're looking to build around it. Marvel has a huge, you know, vast library to integrate and I guess for them, it's like, well, why would we lend you any of our characters? We've got so many. You've got Spidey, and you know, maybe you can do something with Venom, but you don't have an integrated universe, so we're going to demand more money. And I mean, maybe one day that that you know that studio ultimately is housed under Disney. But I mean, if Sony is acquired by anyone other than other than Disney, the rights of Spider-Man will revert back to uh, Marvel, which would mean Disney would own it. Right. So, so we're talking about a ton of leverage for Disney, really, because there's, you know, because I Spider-Man mean, is kind of that's an un, that's that. an understatement when it comes right. to the box office now. With with right. Fox with the Fox movies underneath them now, what do they control? Like you know, fifty sixty percent of the box office. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I I can only imagine what it's like negotiating with them if you're the cinema chains. I mean, you know, Disney owns the market, right? They like what what motivates because of streaming because of social media and like because of netflix and instagram and youtube 
like what really gets people back into the into the movie theaters other than you know these huge you know big budget type of productions the artsy stuff you know isn't making it right so but so let, let's go there then first because i think when we're talking about disney uh, and we're again speeding up time a little bit i know you've already said you don't have a position in these stocks but one of the things that i think as a disney long that i'm i'm concerned about is disney's about to roll out disney plus and you know we'll talk about or we can talk about the pricing and then we can talk about how that literally racks up with netflix and with anybody else there but one of the challenges for them is that they have the box office they have this cash cow and figuring out how to like at some point you're talking about the marvel universe and how big it is and it used to be just Spider-Man and a bunch of trash. And now all of a sudden we're getting excited about Thor and Black Widow and Black Panther and all these other characters that weren't as obviously central to the universe. But at some point, I guess the question, there's the question of what can be too much, but then also how does Disney succeed in the streaming game, which seems to be where they really need to succeed if they have this cash cow? Like how do you see them managing this? Well, it's I mean, so- look, I was long Disney for a while. I mean, it, it, like, look at the last 12 months, right? Disney's up like probably 30%. Netflix is down like 20%, right? And right. Disney was like on the surface, a, a pretty obvious long. It's kind of crazy how it moved on its analyst day and, and like a 14% move or whatever it did that day when they mm-hmm. announced uh, pricing for Disney Plus and uh, like how the stock has been like, I mean – you, you often don't want to buy something and be like, Avengers is coming out. It's going to crush it. Captain Marvel is going to crush it. Spidey, this, all that. The Star Wars. I mean, th- they've had a clear strategy for this year. I mean, look at what they've done on the box office. You've had the digital remakes of Lion King, mm-hmm. Dumbo, Aladdin. It, you've had two, three Marvel movies, right? You've got Star Wars. You've got Maleficent. You've got Frozen. You've got Toy Story. So what is Disney doing? They're, they're preceding Disney Plus, right? So they're like, I think the budget for Disney Plus content last I, I read is it like these like you know new originals and the Marvel miniseries like Black Widow and whatever is not crazy. It's like a billion dollars, right? But what they do have is that every single kid on planet Earth, right? Like if they're gonna want to watch old Marvel movies, old animations, right? And the ones that just got released in the last 12 months, what does every parent have to do? They have to get Disney Plus, right? I mean, it's a no-brainer. So you, they've, you think that they've stacked the deck enough to kind of – I'd say that's the definition of what they did this year. Right. Like why wouldn't okay. you break these out? Like why, do you, why are you breaking out everything you got box office-wise? It's a really good question for next year if there's going to be a massive box, out, box office hangover, right? Like, I mean, I, I've dabbled with the idea of, of, of shorting cinema chains, but I mean, it does seem so obvious, but like, if you look at, like they've done all that they can in terms of increasing revenue by upping the seats and making them more comfortable and premium pricing and all these things. On the flip side, they've got Disney now to negotiate with on the windows, right? And I mean, you're talking about a situation where like, if you're Disney, like, and, you've, and you're, you're looking for content, and subscribers well you know you're going to you're going from, you're not going from the from the box office you know to pay-per-view to license to x y and z to this window to ddvd i mean it's going to be box office to disney plus right 
Right. And I, I, I would say they stacked the deck this year heavily to have such a huge library in there when Disney Plus launches of, you know, all their favorites that, you know, every single person is going to have to get Disney Plus because that, that like, I mean, th- there's been so much this year. I can't even imagine everyone like w- with the level that people have been going to the movies. It's obviously been a great year, but relatively speaking to, to historical norms, you couldn't see them all, right? I mean, I've been to the cinema more times this year than I've been maybe in the last five years, right? right. And it's because I like I do love The Lion King. I did want to see Aladdin. I have to okay. see every Marvel movie, right? So it's – but I would say I'm the exception to that, and there's going to be a lot of people who are going to consume a lot of this content on Disney+. Plus. Well, and the other – so the other important thing there, I guess, is that because Disney – still has legacy contracts as far as i remember with and fox especially also with whether it's with hbo or whether it's with netflix to license out the content for a few years after and so by kind of gaining this exclusivity with all this good new content you give every chance of disney plus getting off on the right foot right that's sort of correct i mean some of these deals expire 2022 2023 and whatnot but yeah you want to seed it and like you know this is this is your new monetization from from before of you know 200 million in dvd revenue right every time you had a you know a major pixar or disney animation that uh, kids wanted to see and buy and whatnot so i think that i i mean i think they're going to see massive subscriber additions well above what people are expecting you know like I, I can't see how like everyone isn't compelled. I mean, they ran this promotion. It crashed the website like for every single day last week. I don't know if you followed that. I mean, I think I I pinged you to to sign up. Where if you if you opened an account with uh, their like you know what is it called their loyalty rewards? Uh, yeah, D twenty three or yeah, something. If you open the D twenty three account for free, you could lock in Disney Plus at four four dollars and like sixty cents for the next three years, right? And right. it literally took me like four days to get that thing done because of the demand. So, yeah. I mean, it was insane. Like they came out and said, sorry, but like, I mean, the demand, they haven't released the numbers on that, but I can imagine it was pretty damn good. So that, so that's sort of everything builds towards this Disney plus launch, which happens, I think in November and they've got a, especially they've sort of stacked the deck we're, we're saying. And so in theory, they should get off to a really strong start. And I guess, it's worth say, like what can go wrong here? I'm, I'm, you're already sort of hinting 2020 might be a hangover in the box office. What can go wrong here? Like what, what is the, I mean, for one thing, you're not long Disney. So I guess you, you have some sense of that, but what, what would you be? I mean, I'm not long Disney because the market has been crazy and I've been focused so much on shorting technology stocks. And, you know, I made 20% in Disney in six months and, and I'm a happy camper. I haven't spent enough time on the theme park business, which had, you know, and the cable business, ESPN, right? So like both, like the theme park business has had a really nice run. And that's, that's been like, you know, no different than a lot of stuff on the consumer side where pricing has been strong, right? Ticket prices have gone up and uh, new rides and revenue and whatnot. And their market share in that space is great. And I think the comps on, on, on that business, not as good as they've been running after the last couple of years. So like, I mean, you know, this is a complicated business, right? It's a huge company. 
ESPN, I haven't like, you know, it looks like ESPN has made progress, you know, like the, they're more focused on gambling they're on bundling. There's, there's elements to the fact that like the doldrums of ESPN, they're kind of turning the corner a little bit uh, uh, on, on that, but that's been a huge, I mean, like that's been the cash cow of Disney, right? I mean, for the last, you know, almost two decades, I mean, right. you know, like ESPN's cost, you know, to the cable companies has just been going up and up and up and up and up, you know, for 30 years. So it's wow. had the best pricing. It's had the best pricing power up until recently, the last couple of years, and like that was a big drag on the stock. The box office is, you know, it's been what it, it is. What it is, they're getting more market share, and then they're better positioned. I'm not really worried about them next. I mean, there's a hangover in general, but Disney's gonna get their share, right? They're gonna have their Marvel movies, and it's gonna be like the only thing that people get super excited about, and that's fine for them. It's the theater and the, and their bargaining power with the chains when when they're not when they're not you know producing as many shows as as many mov- major movies as they did this year it just goes up right you need to have that you, like that's going to make or break you is the success of those those Disney Disney films and I just think like they've done a good enough job like the, I don't see the demand falling off like significantly I don't think we've hit some sort of like people are tired of comic books. Like like these these movies have evolved. They're, they they can be comedies. They can be art. It's it's not what it was like you know ten years ago. Right. Because I think what just what's tricky for Disney, especially ESPN, is more obvious to me. But with the box office too, is the you're not you had said you know this is replacing the 200 million they would make off a DVD. But they're also at some point it feels like this is going to take a big chunk out of. That was cable revenues, both advertising and the subscription fees and the box office. And that's where they've got to kind of play that balancing act. Um, and I think that's, you know, the the guy from BTIG, Rich Greenblatt or Greenfield, the uh, that's, I think, I haven't read his work recently, but that's been the drum he's often beat with Disney is how do you make sure that you're, are, are they really committed to streaming? And I, we'll get to Netflix next, but that seems like the big sort of tension for them. And Well, the box office is so lucrative for them. They're going to tier this, right? That's why mm-hmm. you don't see them. I mean, if you've looked at the numbers on content spent, you know, for last year and going into this year, like, you know, Disney spending $1 billion on originals for Disney Plus is nothing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Amazon, $7 billion, Apple, $7 billion. You know, HBO has been at like two. They're taking them up. AT and T fourteen billion on content. Hulu three billion on content. I mean, these are other pieces of. of, I mean, Hulu is in is obviously part of the Disney pie. Uh, You've got this like QB launching. You know, the you've got Roku channel. Obviously, the favorite stock in the market. You know, Roku streaming, Mm -hmm. and everybody talking about that versus Netflix. You got Netflix. Netflix spent what fifteen billion dollars, fourteen billion dollars on content last year. Right. They've, they've got it. I mean, they're, they're sort of leading the charge as far as content spending these days. Look, that's where you can actually maybe make an argument is when does this like, there was 500 scripted TV shows last year. People have been talking about peak television, right? For a while. Okay. And if you look at where we're at this year, we're going to crush that. I think the data last I read 
was the first half of 2019 is like 330 shows already, right? And Apple has not re- launched yet. Disney Plus has not launched yet, right? And you got Pluto TV. You got Roku Channel, tr- try- like which started in what January, as far as trying to up their game on, on having content that's you know ad supported and free. You got HBO. The whole senior team left since Game of Thrones that was running that company mm-hmm. because AT and T wants more hours. Like they want to follow this model, right. right? It's like, which I don't get to tell you the truth because. HBO to me is premium content and like they've built that brand equity to the point where like I pretty much watch everything on HBO. It's to, it's gotten to a point now where I start watching a show on HBO and I'm like, damn, they've got too many shows. Mm. So like I'm not following them enough, but like I started watching Succession. I started watching uh, what's his name? Danny McBride's new mm-hmm. show. And these are great shows. I'm like, why, like, why do you need like, why do you need I, – I, I don't think I've watched anything new on Netflix in the last four or five months. So I, I want to – with Netflix, I think what's interesting to me is when you, when you say that number, 330 shows, we're talking just U.S. English language shows or what's that – what's the denominator? There? I mean I, I haven't seen the breakdown, but I'm assuming it's U.S. scripted right. Oh, shows. Scripted. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because – so we're not talking reality TV, you know. I don't think we're talking documentaries or movies at all. Right. We're just talking scripted TV, right. right? These series, right? And I mean, like these shows don't last long anymore, right? It's like it's one, two, three years. They get canceled, right? right? I mean, to have another Game of Thrones. I mean, let, let's get onto the topic of Netflix, right? Yeah. Netflix had its first subscriber drop since, I mean, what? To, since 2011. Since they raised the DVD, uh, the pricing on uh, Netflix streaming and tried to spin off the DVD business, mm-hmm. right when that first collapse happened. Because remember, I I wrote an article which anytime I write anything negative about any company, Netflix the stock story is over at the end of 2010, mm-hmm. right? And you know, I instantaneously like people will send that to me on Seeking Alpha. They'll be like, "Hey, hey you got this wrong." I'm like, oh, "Go read the go read the article." You know, I made an argument that Netflix is not going to be the Walmart. Okay, of DVD content, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not going to work in streaming. You know, I don't want to go watch really old episodes of Cheers at a crazy valuation, right? And when I when I'd like when I'd laid that out, I mean, I had come at I had come to Netflix from being long Netflix when it was a DVD company and short blockbuster and Hollywood video, mm-hmm. and I'd had really good success on that. It was like one of my early experiences in short selling, right? And and Netflix was what had convinced me to go that route. But when I saw them do their deal on streaming, I'm like, this is just not going to work. Like, okay, you know, Stars was stupid. They, they cut a bad deal. They took some money up front. The content providers, the studios who have sub-licensing that didn't have it covered in the contract. Netflix came in the back door. It took off. It got some subscribers. But like, it didn't have the quality content, right? Like, outside of what you got from stars, it's like, where are you going to go with this? And they started signing their deals and, and, and paying money, but you're like, this is not sustainable. And, and they did pivot, right? They went into original content. And like when the stock was cratering, when Icon came in, was like right around the time that they did House of Cards. And then they changed their whole manifesto to where HBO. So I always try to tell people when they, when they criticize that thesis, I'm like, go read it. I said, they need to become HBO of streaming, mm-hmm. right? And I'm short this stock and I'm long, you know, the content providers. Content is in theory king, 
right? That was the view. Being a distributor is in digital is really not something that I viewed as to turn into what it is as a superior advantage, the way they were arbitraging the post office and the fixed overhead. I mean, Blockbuster made all its money on late fees, mm-hmm. right? That was the business model of, of, of those companies. And once you could, once you had no late fees and you could mail things in, you just destroyed it, right? And they had huge fixed overhead and physical presence and paying rent and whatever. You know, it's that kind of Amazon-esque disruption. But I just didn't see how that could play out and how everybody in content would sit back and let Netflix continue to do what it's doing. And I think part of the reason Netflix turned into what it is, is licensing is so complicated and the people doing the licensing of content and the many layers are so out there to monetize it, right? In like different buckets that Netflix coming in and paying top dollar, like they underestimated the long-term damage that would do to their businesses as they got bigger and bigger, right? So they're taking the money up front and Netflix eventually got to a scale and they started creating their own content, right? To the point where there's so much, we went to a point where it was like, all right, like there's so much new content on Netflix. Like it's interesting. I don't really care about old content, right? I don't need to watch an old movie on the, on, uh, on like 50 different cable channels. Right. I'm going to go to Netflix. But now it feels like it's kind of flipped, right? Like if you deal with the Netflix user interface, like unless I've really discovered something on it, there's just so much content that like I go back to cable and just flip through the channels because I can't make a decision. You know, it's that paradox of choice element where I'm just like, I'm like, I don't know what I want to watch. So, you know, uh, I'll watch The Breakfast Club on, you know, Showtime 13. (laughs) So, but so let me, there are a few things with Netflix that are interesting to me. One of them, which I sort of hinted at is I like, I like Netflix as a consumer specifically for their foreign language stuff. I live abroad and I, for me, I think the way there's just like, usage user usability things that they do really nice the ux is really good around that and then they have some interesting stuff but what i want to what yeah but for discovery how do you do it are you get on you get on you get on the internet and you'd say new netflix shows and then pull a review and, and sit like that's what i was doing i mean i love documentaries like true crime uh you know serial killers you know, fraudsters, like uh, Netflix has had some great series, the, the financial, the China hustle. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the one, uh, the, the one with, uh, uh, valiant yeah. and dirty money and whatever, like it's, it, it's, it's documentary heaven. Right? right. So I've always loved that element of it, but it's like, I mean, I'll take you, I'll take a show that I really like that. I, I didn't discover for a while glow, mm-hmm. you know, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. I mean, that's a really well-written show, Right. right? And I can't imagine how many people have watched it, but it it like someone told me about it and I resisted watching it so many times for so long. Then I finally watched it and I went through it all in like, you know, your typical binge style, mm-hmm. right? And then you're like waiting for one day to be reminded when it's it's on TV again. I was really into the OA. I was very uh, very annoyed they canceled that. Right. So, but here's my, this, I'm going to go back to your article, which I pulled up while you talked, article from 2010. And you said, one of the ways you could go wrong, which I think ultimately, if somebody's going to say that that thesis was wrong, was because Netflix management figured it out. That was basically your argument. And what you're presenting for Netflix, to me that- But Daniel, I mean, you've got it in front of you. Go long, short Netflix, go long Lionsgate films. In 12 months, one quintupled 
and the other ended up falling 50%. Now, I'll tell you what, I didn't get the, the huge benefit off that because I was getting my face ripped off over like that four-month stretch where it went ballistic. No, and I, I'm not I'm not necessarily go, what I what – I, no, I, no, I get it, but I'm saying like I looked at that and I was like the content producers are going to do really well you know, because of what's going on in streaming and the demand and the need to get that. Like, this is the first place to go. Lionsgate had a huge library. It was an, like, you know, they bought Artisan, they had whatever, and it, it was an easy monetization path for them. And I would look at Netflix and I would be like, what happens when the Stars deal expires? Like, I, I need to be like, Reed Hastings used to say, this is not a place you're going to come to watch Avatar. It's a place where you'll come to watch like an old episode of Cheers. Right. Okay. Right. And they changed the manifesto to we're HBO. We're creating premium original content. But so here's here's what what I, what I think is the question for you then is we're in the period where content is everywhere. I think you know one common idea is that we're going to get sick of the fact that now we have to buy all the different streaming things to get everything we want. But if you had to give me the company who can best solve the how do I find something I want to watch. Wouldn't you bet on the company that has solved other technological challenges around streaming, to, you know, and changed successfully pivoted two or three times before? Like, isn't that what? If I'm a Netflix bull, that's sort of what I'm saying is they're spending, but they'll. You're saying the challenge is there's so much that seems like a decent problem to have that I can probably figure out. Okay, so here's how I think about it. Right, like we can make an argument today that. People are going to the shows created in this window from like let's say the last two years sure. and let's talk about maybe the next eighteen months. Okay, people will be discovering these shows a decade from now. There will be like hit shows that will go viral, right? That were created in this window, and they'll be like, "Oh my god, dude, have you seen what's it called? I mean, that's a glow." And it will have had like three or four seasons, right? Because the deluge of content is insane, and I I can only imagine what's going to happen to Hollywood. Right. Once this stops, right, it's going to be, I mean, talk about a boom to bust, right? Like it's going to be a bust on epic proportions because right now there's like the old school stars like a Jennifer Aniston or a Reese Witherspoon. They're still cashing in on big checks from Apple because they want to seed content with identifiable people, right? And then your average actor, it's been like they're not getting paid huge money, but there is so much work right? That it's been a good business to be in, but it can't be consumed, you know? And we're not even just talking about like TV series and movies and, and, and whatnot. Like you literally got to look at it from the context of social media, you know, YouTube, uh, Instagram, it's hours in a day and we're well past that. Like that, that's where I look at a Netflix today. I'm still paying the subscription fee. I may come in and consume something, but the interface with cable has actually made me want to go back to sh- like to watch old shows I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Like I watch old Seinfeld episodes, right? I'm watching, you know, old movies on th- like it's it's actually kind of increased the value of the fam- familiarity of old content. Because there's so much new stuff, like how do you efficiently discover it, sift it out and, and enjoy it? And we're going to hit a point where there's going to be right. a lot less, right? So from a profitability standpoint, I mean, I guess that could be good for these guys, but like, you know, how long before Apple quits? They're just getting into this game, right? They want subscribers. Well, they want recurring that's revenue. That's the other question here too, is just how much, 
I guess this is basically what you're asking, but how much demand is there? How much, how much will people continue to open their wallets? You mentioned Netflix sort of hit, had their first dip in subscribers in a while. Okay. So, and what, what was, by the way, what was notable about the, that quarter when Netflix had its first dip? Because I mean, I thought about shorting it. I didn't, right? What was notable about that quarter? Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. Avengers, right? Like there was two things, two big things that have you know come to a conclusion that, and Netflix didn't really have anything new, and they, you know they had their Kevin Spacey debacle with House of Cards, like they've done pretty well on these old Marvel TV series, but it got too much, and like clearly like the the ROI on it for them didn't make much sense, and obviously the beef with Disney and, and whatnot, but that had been stuff that had like you know core viewership, and they saw a subscriber drop. And it's not exactly surprising because it was it's kind of stale, right? You're looking at it. You're like, there is a lot on there. I'm sure if you spent the time and like Googled everything, pulled it up, you know, like you, you, you'd find something worthwhile to watch. But it wasn't – they don't have that big box office type thing, that like that Game of Thrones, everybody wants to watch it together. It's an event. Avengers, it's an event. Get out there, see it. And I would say that played a huge part uh, in that window, you know, probably on their subs, that and the combination of their content. So there's a logical argument that like that was kind of a temporary headwind, but like it didn't take much, right? Like as a reminder that in terms of how fresh your, your stuff is, which is why mm-hmm. you're seeing them do the, you know, the Scorsese film, their beef with the, their beef with the studios over you know, what is streaming and what, like what, the window that you can put it in, in the movie theater, they're doing the Breaking Bad movie. So I think they're, they, they, they've realized they have way too much content and they now want, you know, some tentpole style stuff. Well, it's interesting because I was just thinking what you said about them wanting to be the HBO, but at the same time, they are also the content giant in terms of volume. And then, yeah, that, you know, they had Roma last year, which I forget if it won Best Picture, but it won a lot of Oscars. And then you have Scorsese this year is going to be, it looks like their big Oscar push. And it, it's just interesting that they're playing these prestige games while also being notorious for having the long tail of content. And if that may be because the prestige then allows them to sign, you know, the creator of how to get away with murder or all these other tentpole uh, figures in the producers, right? Because ultimately, the supply side. I mean, they, I think they just cut a deal with they, they cut a deal with the Russo brothers, didn't they? Yeah, I think that's right. They've cut a deal with. Uh, they had that limited series from uh, the right uh, Cohen brothers. Some people didn't like it. You know, I liked it. I mean, I prefer Fargo, the TV series. That was great, but. Yeah, I, I don't think I, – I think we, because we've gotten to a point of so much, like the, it's all pretty good content. You know, The level of content in aggregate has improved drastically. But that like really high-quality stuff, like HBO is still doing it. I don't really understand AT&T's strategy with HBO because I look at it. I'm like, you guys are spending a lot less and you're still you still have the demand. I mean, you you need to figure out the global bundling and and uh, and you know, individual streaming subscribers, but like you don't really need to spend much more on content because you have the brand equity for uh, f- as being HBO, 
that when you launch a, a TV series, I, I, I'm interested in it. And if you have six or seven just shows running, like it, it stays relevant in my mind. And like when I go to see what's on HBO and I'm just scrolling through that, that's fine. When I go to Netflix and I'm, and it's like, you know, a million and one different options from, you know, reality TV, you know, to cooking shows. I mean, I, and I, I do like some of that, that, that content to documentaries to their original TV series. It's, it's very hard to keep up and figure out what you want to watch unless it becomes something that is like, that gets the buzz and, and like, you know, enough people tell you about it and you got to watch the show and like you get, you get into it or like you read enough critical reviews and you're like, okay, I'll try this out. I mean, like that's essentially so, how I discovered Glow. L- let me just jump in uh, with a sort of big topic question that I, I had in mind, which is related to this, I think is that it's so, these are so tangible to us. You talked at the beginning, sort of invest in what you love and sort of the whole, that's the Peter Lynch is usually credited with that. But how do you, balance that out when you're dealing with these streaming companies that again we interact with a lot disney we've known all our lives netflix is omnipresent hbo like how do you what do you do to kind of check yourself or to make sure that you're not getting too into one specific tangible feeling for it when you're actually managing money look i mean it's hard to you know break this down from an investor standpoint because a lot of this content is wrapped up now in giant companies, right? So like Amazon, Apple, like, I mean, you know, I'm not going to go buy Apple because right. of Jennifer Aniston and right. Reese Witherspoon's new show, right? <laughs> it's, it's it's not going to move the needle. And the same thing with in terms of new shows for Netflix. I think one where that, that's gotten, you know, way out of hand okay. recently is, is Roku, right? I mean, Roku is being compared by many people to, you know, Netflix in its early days and it's ad supported and the shift from linear TV advertising to streaming that they, what they've benefited as is they're small, they're independent. They're not in any of these walled gardens. Right. And they're kind of, you know, they're like Switzerland, right. They're hosting all these, you know, OTT apps. I mean, people don't even remember the fact Roku was spun out of Netflix. Right. I mean, are you aware of that? I was not aware of that. No. Yeah, it's the original OTT team that developed the Netflix app, right? And they're doing the hardware. Netflix didn't want to do the hardware. They spun them out. I think it was called like, you know, uh, Netflix OTT something. And they renamed themselves Roku, right? So like when people talk about, oh, would Netflix buy Roku? Like Netflix is not going to want to get into advertising supported. It's just not their business model, right? And so when I look at a Roku, Netflix trades right now at like five times sales, Right, five and a half, six times forward revenue, right? Of this year, and we're halfway through the year, three quarters of the way through the year, right? Roku is trading probably at like thirty times platform revenue okay. for 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 twenty nineteen. Like they're they're guiding to a billion dollars or so in revenue. Six hundred fifty million or so is expected to be the the advertising. I put no value on the hardware right. business, right? It's a lost leader, so. I look at it and I say, I, I'm going to compare this to, to Snapchat or or Pinterest, right? Like you got 20, 26 million active uh, subscribers. They have how many? What's your gross margin? And you're getting 30x. Like nothing's getting 30x. And, and, and Pinterest is growing at the same rate and has higher gross margins. And you're likely to face in, like very rapidly rising content costs, right? So when I look at that and I look at the opportunity to own Netflix at this multiple with them being, let's say, more rational with how they spend their money as the hyperscale uh, fan, what do you want to call them? You know, 
tech giants come into the game, you can make an economic argument that it makes more sense to own a Netflix here, right? But the way the market works, you know, the, the stock's not going to turn until the subscriber metrics improve or, right. you know, they have pricing, right? And Netflix does have room still to take pricing up, right? I mean, you know, one of the reasons I was like, I, I was kept like a, a little bit, you know, critical of a Netflix and, and a long Starbucks last year when it was like $58 is, you know, I'm spending like, you know, $15 a day at Starbucks. Right. Right. And I mean, it's a different margin profile, but like I'm spending what, $9 a month on Netflix? Right. Right. The cable bill is still really up there. I mean, like, you know, I guess like, you know, if you got every channel, you're paying like close to like $200. And, but there's something for me with cable where I prefer the ability to flip through channels. And there's like the, the UX problem. I like the Netflix app. I like how you, you can interact with it, but it's discovery. Like if Netflix was like 10 TV channels and they were running stuff, I'd be like, you know, I'd be like Netflix this, Netflix that on top of being able to go into an on-demand manner, like you almost want to make the argument that that they go in the direction of cable. Like you just have stuff running. So I'm kind of flipping through and discovering it. And then if I want to go find something specific, which has gone viral or my friends have referred me to, or I've been reading about, you know, I click that on-demand button the way cable works today, right? I go watch an old episode of whatever that like HBO has put out, Veep or Succession or whatnot. I don't have to watch it when it airs. But I consume it in that manner. So I think maybe it, if they can optimize, you know, figuring out like this is just from a personal interaction with it, like solving that problem because like they've lost me big time in the last year from a, 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 like a mindshare standpoint. Right. That's yeah. It's just interesting because that to me seems like such an opportunity for either them or for an entrepreneur to work with them to. This, it, it still seems like a, a, not the worst problem you can have as compared to the competition. It's not the worst problem you can have, but it's like it's been a year of where there's so much noise that the stuff that was familiar mm-hmm. has done really well, right? Like I, I want to see the, the remake of Lion King. I want to see the remake of, uh, of Aladdin. I want to watch the conclusion to Avengers, the conclusion to Game of Thrones, like stuff that has been invested in over time, right? That's how, like, if you look at Seinfeld and Friends, you know, like Friends has been one of the most successful consumed shows on Netflix, right? And I mean, if you consider, will there be a show like Seinfeld again, which makes several billion dollars after it's stopped airing? Like you could argue that, okay, there's so much content now that, you know what, having Seinfeld... Right. is actually valuable right. again still, no. right? Because it's like pe- people are going to want to watch it and that makes it like there's a scarcity because you've you've created so much and it's not that it's not as good as Seinfeld, but like people don't want to invest the time like to something like that versus going back to something that they're familiar with. Right. Getting people to invest new time now, that's the struggle, right? Because like you start a show and it's like, you know, I was watching... Better Call Saul. I'm, I'm watching Ray Donovan. I'm, like, and like, to, it's gotten to the point now where you're like, you look back and you're like, oh, is there has there been a new season of that in the last two years? Did I forget about that show? Where was I on that show? Right, right. So, so how do I discover how do I discover new stuff today? 
So here's, let me, I, I can't answer that question for you, except uh, I guess you can. And that's the other, another content boom is just all the coverage of TV shows, which is still. Like QB's idea, and tell me what you think of this, is essentially short form, seven okay. to 10 minute TV episodes being able to be consumed over mobile. Does that work better? Is that where we're at? It, if your argument is that we're too busy to watch full content, yeah, I mean, it's an, it's a. I mean, there's a question of being too busy. And even if you have the time, once you have that time, how much easier is it to just pop open your, your Instagram, look what's going on there, watch some like, you know, clips of a uh, right. video on YouTube versus trying to figure out what new series you want to invest your time in? Right. So let me bring it back for a last question to the the investing from here which is you we we're talking about streaming what are the sort of numbers or what are the things that you are going to be most watching as as you look at these companies as you consider whether to get in or get out like what are you going to be what actual numbers matter I mean I have my eye on I have my eye on Netflix it's been like you know it's like it's like Nvidia has been for for up until maybe the last week, you know, a dead money stock mm-hmm. for most of the year, right? It's not one of these SaaSes, which by the way, you know, that that stuff has just right. now had its its reckoning, but it's been like dead money, right? Y- you look at it, it's 20% down over 12 months, so like maybe 23, 24, Disney's up like 30, you know, Roku's up what? 7x at 800%, right? So like there's that there's I, I, I mean, I, I, I personally at this level would be long Netflix, short Roku, right? Now, I was not a Roku bear. I was long Roku earlier in the year. But I mean, like, did, did I think this thing was going to turn and what it, ter- what it turned into in terms of uh, momentum in the stock market? Like, I do run into people and they're like, oh, Roku's the next, ne- next Netflix. I'm like, yeah, that, that can't really happen in a world where right. Netflix already exists, okay? Right? And everybody has gone into streaming, you know? Like what one of the biggest issues before was like, why was everyone so slow to react? And like, it was because the, the previous model was, was so lucrative, but like now it's like Apple's on the way and Disney, right? And like and literally coming in months, Amazon is spending a ton of money. There's, you know, Hulu's going to up their content spend. I mean, HBO is looking to create significantly more hours and, and right. HBO Max app and whatever. Like it's, it's, I look at a Roku and I'm like, I, all right, that's 30 yeah. times sales. Sorry, guys. I mean, like, I'd rather own Pinterest, you know, at 15 times sales growing, you know, roughly at the same rate, you know, revenue wise in terms of a long term moat, because I don't think they're going to be able to expand in the same way internationally as they have domestically. I think you're going to see fierce competition as you're running a revenue share model over advertising, right? So Amazon can undercut you. Apple can come after you. I mean, I mean, like you want to talk about someone who's dropped the ball in this whole space, Apple, what the hell did they do wrong with Apple TV? Right? Like how did Roku turn into what it turned into? Like, you know, Apple was early. They had their UX, you know, but like they made it difficult. Like, you know, they didn't want to open up the store. They didn't, they didn't want to, they didn't want to make it easily accessible for every single, you know, application. They're, 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 closed system like apple tv should have just right. been hosted on every single television right they didn't take that approach and it was like but that's their culture right they're clo- they're, they're a closed box and that's one time where like you know going the android route would have worked 
Now, Amazon and Google have tried this, but like it, it's like two fiefdoms, right? And Roku has managed to slide in as that neutral party and just, you know, everybody gets on on their platform. And they discovered in this window, I think, with so much content, some people are happy to watch the free content you have on. There were some ads, right? It's, right. It, it can be tough to beat free. And they still have your Netflix app there. They still have their other core apps that they want to watch. And like, because of that, and because they're collecting data, advertisers are interested in it. And like, it's pull, push and pull, you know, out of the linear TV it, 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 into their neighborhood. And I mean, like, yeah, $20 when they were saying that that's what they were, you know, it was a freaking steal, right? But at 30 times platform revenue with Amazon's aspirations, Samsung wanting to do more in advertising, like Apple launching the station, it's like their content costs are going to go up. The margins are going to go down. I can buy Netflix at five times sales. Netflix, I'm not going to cancel my subscription if they raise pricing another $2, right? I may if they raised it, you know, if it was double what it is today, considering I, I, I'm still watching more on cable. But I think Netflix can get me back if, if, if the discovery element, because I'm sure there's tons of stuff on there that I would watch. It's like, how do you pull me back in? Right. So, so that what I'm hearing is what Netflix discovery is the big opportunity. And there's still, it sounds to me like Roku. I wonder, I guess the last thing is, do you think that there is going to be at some point a rebundling opportunity play here? Do you think with all these different streaming apps, if Roku is not the right play, somebody else is going to figure out a way to be that Switzerland? Or do you think that that ship has kind of sailed at this point? I mean, I don't understand why, for example, if I flip through the channel on a cable box, right, that the the streaming channel isn't available to be interacted with in the same way I go to the on-demand button on like a Verizon. Like this is something you got to ask the cable companies, right? I don't know what they're up to. I don't know what Comcast is doing and, and, and Verizon is doing on, on this front. But if they can solve that interaction, right? Like the TV guys have have, have tried, but it's like it's different ecosystems, right? But if, I, if I'm going to watch an app on the TV, but I have it connected to like a surround sound system, uh, it's 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 not working through the same way. So when I want to watch Netflix or YouTube on there, right, I have to turn the I have to turn one one input down, and right. I have to go through the other. Right, you're going through the TV. It's not a separate feed. Like somewhat, like there's a hardware element that hasn't been cracked in terms of of how to make that consumption still right. seamless. Right now, you I can get a Roku, and that just becomes my kind of de, de facto uh, device, and that's kind of what's what's worked out for them. But like you know. I mean, it, like my brother has a Roku. My brother, my brother has an Amazon Fire. Like you know, like it flips between the two. Like I, I tried what was it, Chromecast mm -hmm. at one point. I was really into the the illegal one at one point. Uh, Cody. Okay. That was a great UX, and I don't understand how they screwed that up. Like that should have just been a legitimate business. Right. Right. And that. I mean, they could like they had they had the exact setup you want to watch TV shows, movies, the skins, the way it's managed. Like you know that whole skin, the the way Cody was set up, like why why isn't there a, a way of consuming content in that manner? That's that you know I would pay five hundred dollars a year for that, no problem. Interesting. Okay. Okay. All right. But I think one one thing from an investing standpoint here is like it's tough to find the pure plays now, right? Like you want to buy Disney, but you got 
you got the cable business, you got ESPN, you got the box office, you got the the theme parks. You want to buy HBO's business and like, oh, they're doing well. Time Warner maybe like you know gets their act together in DC Universe and and but oh, it's sitting inside AT and T and I got to digest everything that's going on in in broadband. And although I I kind of say I think broadband is a good space to be. I think it's the pipes and the infrastructure uh, have pricing power going forward without question. But like, really, the only thing that's been like an easy, you know, kind of layup on 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 playing a theme has been Roku, mm-hmm. right? It's small, it's public, relatively speaking. The whole it's a hundred percent pure play, and I think that like you've seen like the like the maybe unwillingness to find something like you know that like people want it to be that new Netflix, and that's kind of overinflated that valuation because. They don't want to own Netflix here at, the, at these levels, and maybe the, the Netflix has got a bit of a transition period going on. Uh, like Disney, you can get excited, but this is not going to be moving the financial needle remotely compared to the, the rest of the business. So, it, 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 like, like that's part of the reason why when I look at the space, you you have to get so familiar with so many other things. Unless you want to basically be long a Netflix or short a Roku, right? Right. Like uh, you saw when Disney reported and it went down on 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 the Fox write down of uh, of that disaster of a film. What was it? Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. X X Men Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix. It was X Men. Okay. Yeah. Which, by the way, I saw and I walked out of that theater and I was like, I thought X Men Apocalypse was was a step down. But I watched this movie and I'm like, what the freaking like like introduce me to the writers of this? Like, how do they have a job? Is this, is thing are things this bad in Hollywood? Like that, a, a, like a franchise of this size, and you've got like a you know what's her name? Jennifer Lawrence has like a two second cameo, and the way they dealt with removing her from the universe, and they bring in Jessica Chastain, who's just an amazing actress, and she's like in this weird role and these aliens and and. I'd sold I'd sold Disney several weeks I think or maybe even two months I don't know when it was before that report but the when when that came out I had been tempted to speculate on Disney as 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 just a long on on the huge box office and I'd read something about you know how bad the the Fox X Men was I was like yeah it was yeah. bad <laughs> I have not seen a superhero movie that bad in my life. And you had, you know, primo actors. So it's no surprise that uh, they took a hit on that. But that's the kind of stuff you're dealing with, right? Like they report, it kind of goes down a little. The stock is unchanged, essentially speaking, since that since that day. It came back to like 138 uh, recently. But like, they're like, you know, the theme park's not as impressive. Right down at Fox, offsetting, you know, gangbuster uh, numbers out of uh, uh, the box office. And you know, we'll see what happens with Disney Plus coming up in, in the near future. But I don't think you can go like I think as as a long term investor, like at where still where it currently trades, like I still think you got like you got yourself a good twenty, thirty percent more upside in Disney. Right? I mean, what what is it right now, market enterprise value? Two two forty? It's two fifty market cap, so it's probably so like what 280 enterprise value? Yeah, I think they've got quite a bit of debt with the new deal. Yeah, like uh, this is that's a 350 billion dollar company, right? I mean, it's it's a rare asset, right? In in this right. day and age. 
I mean, we go back to, you know, what, uh, you know, why Apple is doing what Apple's doing and, you know, why didn't Apple ultimately buy Disney or, or Apple buy Netflix? Right. Right. Like, I mean, it's probably would have been an easier way to enter into what they're doing, but like, you know, Apple has their own distribution platform and they have so much cash and it looks like everybody's figured out how to make content. So like, look, we got you on iPhone. We're going to get you on a subscription. And, you know, uh, like that, even if that means we're spending $5 billion a year, that makes more sense to us than spending, you know, $200 billion on one of these assets. Right. But this space should see, there will be a point where there's going to be a lot of consolidation. And we can't be that far, like, like these guys will eventually retrench from it because you're not going to be getting the incremental subscribers and subscription revenue, right? That's the big debate mm-hmm. at the end of the day with like Amazon spending what it's spending, but like you're all, it's, you know, what's their penetration of prime subscribers, right? Like it's significantly up there. Apple's got, you know, their music. It's like how many iPhone users are out there? Like they've obviously they've got a way to go to boost that subscription revenue, but like, you know, I mean, where Netflix is subscriber wise, like, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they could probably add another 50, 70 million over the next couple of years. But like, like, it's not a subscriber growth story now to get excited about. You got to look at it and be like, this has got to be a cash flow machine, right? Like, it's going to be pricing power. It's got to compound over time. And they have to differentiate themselves, I guess, you know, in, in some which way, shape or form from this whole crowd. Because all these other guys who are coming in, you know, have installed bases of users, right? And they're not competing against you for their time. And we haven't even heard anything about Facebook who, you know, wants to get into video and, you know, original programming. Like, it seems like, you know, everybody wants to do content. I mean, like, that is, that's the U.S. economy these right. days, right? All right, cool. Well, let's let's leave it there because I think we could, you know, even just throwing out Facebook, we could be t- here for I think there's going to be more to unpack here over time, but this was, I think it's just interesting to think about Netflix sort of now in the role of hunted and how they manage their lead in the streaming. And like you said, with the new install basis and then all the, yeah, I mean, obviously with Disney, just, you know, we're going to find out in the next few months. Yeah. I I think Netflix is quietly, you know, like they're spending what they're spending, but they're clearly being more rationalized with what they're doing. Right. They've been canceling a lot of shows, and uh, and and they seem to be focusing more on trying to get like big budget mm-hmm. productions that like you know bring people in to view in the same way a superhero movie does, or you know a series like a Game of Thrones, right? Right. Like I I, I don't I don't see them like I, I I think they will lead the way into less volume of content creation. Like we probably, I don't like, I, I, I'm, I think it's worth us looking at the data and maybe doing a little research on it, but like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Netflix is the first one to do less scripted content in aggregate. Meaning they're the ones to lead the sort of pullback in scripted content. Yeah. Like while, while, while Disney plus is coming in and Apple's launching and whatever, like they, they don't expect to lose. They, they basically want to up their quality in terms of you know satisfying the existing base and m- maybe to a degree reducing the noise right so i give you six or seven shows that you're focused on on a year right 
uh, and get me back interacting on a daily basis. And then over time, just raise the price. Right. 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 Because I like I, I can spend fifteen billion dollars and lead the pack in terms of volume, but like, have I hit a point where there's just a diminishing return on that? And I, you know, I'm better off spending a billion dollars on some like crazy new series to compete with, you know, Star Wars and some the Marvel stuff. That maybe like I mean it's riskier, right? Right. But if you get the actors and you spend the marketing dollars and whatever, and the and the right people to create content as content as quality has gotten really good, like I'm sure with the resources they can create hits. So it's I think for them it's like more about creating hits than giving you like this just giant menu of everything to consume. That'll be interesting. That'll be an interesting shift if they go down that route. So that's a that's yeah. To me, it's like going to the cheesecake factory. You know, they have like everything on the di- and you're just like, I don't even know what I want to eat. <laughs> I like that. That's that's a good cross sector comparison. All right, cool. So this this has been great. It's a good way to start off the podcast. Uh, any you brought in a bunch of other names. I should you mentioned Google. I'm long Google as well. Any other names uh, of those different that you have positions in or are we still? I mean, I've started to short some Roku as of today, but that's about it. Okay, great. Okay. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much, Akram. Looking, uh, looking forward to seeing how the streaming sector plays out and uh, looking forward to the next time on the Razor's Edge. Me too, bro. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Razor's Edge. I hope you enjoyed it. Leave us feedback with a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or email us at premiumauthors at seekingalpha.com if you want to get more in-depth. This is one of the two initial shows on our new channel, The Investing Edge. The other show is Value Investors Edge Live, hosted by Jay Mintzmeyer, and featuring his live interviews with shipping sector CEOs, experts, and other deep value investors. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and get two podcasts for the price of one. Not that it costs anything, just your time to sign up. Thank you for your support. This has been Seeking Alpha Production. See you next time.